millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The United Kingdom is known for many things. It's understated natural beauty. It's red telephone boxes. It's many successful musical exports like the Beatles and One Direction. However, it's also home to many of the world's eeriest unsolved murders, including a wide range of cold cases that have since long faded from the public's memories. This week we will conclude our series on unsolved murders from the United Kingdom, and this week on Mysteriously Listed. Number 5. Anne Hogg 68-year-old Anne Hogg and her younger sister Caroline lived together in the area of Heathfield, Surrey. The sisters were always seen together and seemingly never left each other's sides. The sisters were known as eccentric, dressing in the same mismatched style and even speaking in unison. Because of this, they were often the brunt of the neighbourhood jokes. They were quite reclusive as well, with only gardeners ever allowed to visit their cottage home, the sisters preferring the company of each other only. June 11, 1906, between 4 and 4.30pm, Caroline, the younger of the Hogg sisters, she was seen running around the cottage gardens covered in blood. No one could be seen chasing her. More bizarrely, Caroline could be heard screaming over and over, I've been murdered. Neighbours immediately alerted the police, and when they arrived at the sisters' home, they discovered a horrific scene. Anne Hogg would be found lying in a pool of blood. Her throat had been cut so deeply she was almost decapitated, and there was evidence of blunt force trauma to her face, leaving her almost unrecognisable. Caroline had also been stabbed multiple times and was taken to hospital in a critical condition. However, she would eventually make a full recovery. Caroline was questioned by police about what she knew about her sister's murder. Caroline reported that she and Anne had followed their normal daily routine. The sisters returned to their home after an afternoon walk around the village and Caroline went upstairs for a nap whilst Anne remained downstairs to tidy the kitchen. Caroline reported she was awoken about 4pm by the sound of Anne's screams. She leapt from her bed and ran downstairs, thinking her sister may have fallen down and hurt herself. It was when she was halfway down the stairs that she saw a man attacking Anne. This was the last thing Caroline could remember, as when the man saw her, He hit her on the head and knocked her unconscious. Police had a time frame for when the crime occurred. They knew what weapon was used, but they were still baffled with one piece of evidence. Why was Anne holding the blood-covered bricklayer's hammer that was used in the brutal attack? Close to the sisters' cottage was the local asylum. 
Surrey Police did check to see if any patients had escaped in the days leading up to the murder. But this lead was a dead end because everyone was accounted for. Police then changed tactics and questioned all the residents of the small village to see if anyone would know who would target the two elderly women. A reward was also offered for any information. It was during these interviews police discovered a local builder had his tools stolen, including a hammer. To prove his innocence, the man provided a stolen property report from police from June 7th. He would then be cleared of any suspicion. Two theories have been mentioned in this case. The first is that the sisters got into an argument, and in anger, Caroline attacked Anne, killing her sister. To cover her crime, she stabbed herself to make it look like a random attack. Yet the local pathologist stated that Caroline was not strong enough to inflict the fatal wounds on her sister. Yet, a neighbour of the Hogg sisters would report Caroline and Anne did not leave their home all day and never went for a walk around the village like Caroline had claimed. However, another neighbour would allege they had witnessed seeing a young man running across the front lawn, climbing a fence to escape. The neighbour also recalled that the man had made eye contact with him, and in a bid to hide his identity, the man turned up his collar. Unfortunately, the neighbour was unable to give an accurate description of the man. At a coronial inquest into Anne Hogg's murder, Caroline arrived dressed in all black and wearing a heavy black veil. She described the man who attacked her and her sister as being a sort of bricklayer and he demanded money. It would be ultimately determined that Anne was murdered by a person or persons unknown. Caroline would continue living at the cottage she shared with her sister right up until her own death by natural causes. The case of Anne Hogg was never reopened and no further evidence ever came to light. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Number four, Connor and Sheila Dwyer. Connor and Sheila Dwyer lived in Fomoy County, Cork Island, where they had raised their two sons. 62-year-old Connor had worked a variety of jobs throughout his life, including working as a plumber and a driver. In 1991, he was working part-time as a chauffeur for a German businessman, Fritz Wolf. 60-year-old Sheila was described by neighbours as beautiful, but somewhat reserved. The couple was last seen on April 30th, 1991, walking into St. Patrick's Church to attend a funeral. The following day, Sheila spoke on the phone with one of her sisters. Now, Sheila was very close to both of her sisters, Nellie and Maisie, and she spoke to them both frequently. 
Because of this, Maisie was of course concerned when she did not hear from her sister in several days. On May 18, 1991, Maisie went to the Dwyer's family home and knocked on the front door, but there was no response. Maisie would return the next day with the authorities, who forced entry into the home out of concern for the older couple's well-being, that something may have happened to the couple. Connor and Sheila were not inside the house. What was left inside were the couple's passports, reading glasses, and a thousand pounds in cash hidden in a biscuit tin. The only items missing, besides the couple themselves, were a few pieces of clothing. This was probably because Connor and Sheila had been wearing them at the time, and the couple's white Toyota Chrysler. Extensive searches have never found any sign of the couple or their car. The Dwyer's bank accounts have not been accessed since their disappearance. There were reported sightings of the couple in France and Germany over the years, but none of them have ever been confirmed, despite cooperation from Interpol to investigate them. The Dwyer's did not have their passports, and ferry records do not show their car being transported aboard. A year prior to the couple's disappearance, another person from Fomoy went missing. 54-year-old Brian Fennessy was last seen on March 30, 1990. Unlike the Dwyer's, his car went missing with him. There was no sign of Brian for the next 22 years. That was until October 2012. A car with human remains inside was found at the bottom of the River Blackstone during a routine dive by the Blackwater Subaqua Search and Rescue Team. The car was the same make and model as Brian's, and in May 2013, DNA results confirmed that it was indeed Brian found inside. The discovery of the car renewed concerns that the Dwyer's may have also accidentally driven into a river at a still unknown location. While various waterways were searched during the course of the investigation, Brian Finnessy's car went undetected during his searches as well, so there was a possibility the Dwyer's car could be still hidden under the water. But for now, the cause of the couple's disappearance remains a mystery. Number 3. Joan Woodhouse 27-year-old Joan Woodhouse enjoyed her job working as a librarian, but it was the August bank holiday and being the long weekend, she could not wait to finish work and make the most of her extra freedom. Leaving her lodgings in Blackheath on July 31, 1948, she headed to the local train station and boarded a train to Worthing, Sussex. Her family would later remark this was an odd decision, because she was meant to catch a train to Barnsley, Yorkshire, to visit them. However, when she didn't show, they just assumed she had made plans with friends, and they weren't too concerned with her absence. It wouldn't be until Joan failed to turn up to work on August 3rd, 1948, that Joan's friends and family realised that something wasn't quite right, and they reported her missing to police. August 10th, 1948, 
Local labourer Thomas Steelwell was walking through a secluded part of Andrill Park when he noticed something in the distance. Walking closer, it was clear that he was seeing the half-naked body of a young woman, dressed in only pink panties, a bra, suspended belt and stockings. Next to the body were women's clothing, neatly folded in a pile. The woman was soon identified as being Joan Woodhouse, an autopsy determined that she had been raped and then strangled. Police theorised that Joan had either taken off her clothes to sunbathe than had been surprised by her killer, or she had agreed to fool around with an unknown person. Maybe she changed her mind and didn't want to take it any further, and the man did not take the rejection well and killed her. Police began investigating into Joan's background and discovered that she had recently separated from her fiancé. Her friends would report Joan did not take this breakup well and she'd been going through a state of depression in the lead-up to her murder, attempting suicide by overdose of sleeping pills. Joan was also deeply religious. Loved ones questioned any theory involving Joan voluntarily taking off her clothes in a public place. Police immediately suspected Thomas Stilwell, the labourer who found Joan's body, as being responsible. This was because the area where Joan was found was isolated and far from the walking path. Stilwell had a criminal record for public nudity. He openly admitted to police he had exposed himself to young girls on the day he found the body. However, after extensive questioning the police determined he was not involved and released him without charge. The police were under extreme pressure to find Joan's killer, but unfortunately there were no leads. Unhappy with the investigation, Joan's father paid for a private investigator, but he too could find no solid leads. The case quickly went cold and to this state, Joan's killer has not been found. Number 2. Sean Duffy 36-year-old Sean Duffy lived in rural Meancross, just outside Dunglow. He had a burly build and stood at 6 foot 4. He was described by one of his neighbours as a tank of a man. He used his imposing figure and some of his odd jobs as a bouncer, but he made his living doing a variety of other things as well, including working as a driver and an undertaker. But while he was known as being physically imposing, he was also notable for his sense of style. In particular, he was known for wearing a tweed jacket and matching tie. He was close to his large family, which included two brothers and five sisters. Sean spent the evening of January 28, 2005 at the Strand Bar with his brother Kevin, not returning home until the early morning hours of the next day, January 29. Later that day, Kevin went to see Sean and was surprised to find the front door of Sean's small bungalow unlocked. When he went inside, he found Sean's body lying face down on the couch. He had been stabbed beaten and had an arrow from a crossbow sticking out of his right arm. In the course of the investigation, over 1,400 tips were followed up on, with more than 700 witnesses being interviewed. 
Sean's multiple jobs and varied jobs, while they made him an interesting character, it gave investigators lots of leads to follow up on. And while Sean cared about his community and took time to help his elderly neighbours, his diverse hobbies also included things that could be constructed as dangerous enough to become motives for his murder. His own mother said that Sean had a lot of enemies and there were concerns over his dealings with horse racing and the buying and reselling of cars. At the time of his death, Sean also had an assault charge pending against him. It had been theorised that there may have been multiple assailants involved in Sean's murder. Given his size and strength, it would have been difficult for one person to physically overpower him. The use of multiple weapons also supports this theory. Following the 14th anniversary of Sean's murder in 2019, authorities appealed to the public for information, with Detective Inspector Pat O'Donnell reminding the community it was never too late to come forward with information in the case. Detective Inspector O'Donnell also announced evidence from the case were being re-examined in hopes that the advances in technology since Sean's death would result in a DNA profile that would help move the case forward. Number 1. Debbie Lindsley March 1988, 26-year-old Debbie Lindsley was living in Edinburgh, working as a trainee hotel manager. But since she needed to attend a course in London, close to her parents' home, she decided it was the perfect opportunity to stay with them as she missed them dearly. May 23, 1988, Debbie's brother Gordon gave Debbie a lift to the train station to head back to her home in Edinburgh. They said their goodbyes and Debbie boarded the 2.15 train back to her home. Debbie chose the carriage with no exits, meaning once she was on the train she could not switch carriages as the doors opened directly to the outside. However, it is thought that Debbie chose this carriage as it was the only one that allowed smoking. At some point during the journey home, Debbie was attacked and stabbed to death. Her lifeless body was left in the train carriage. Debbie's body would remain undiscovered until the train reached its final destination. It was at this point, a British rail porter, checking for left items, found the seat and floor covered in blood. He immediately shut down the train and called the police. Upon inspection, the police found that Debbie had fought back against her attacker, with not only defence wounds on her hands, but they also found some blood belonging to her killer. It was also determined the knife used in the attack was long-bladed, and because of the carriage, no matter how hard Debbie fought back, she had no means to escape the onslaught. The police theorised that due to the short duration of the train journey, it was likely Debbie knew her attacker. However, with 70 people having boarded and departed from the train by the time it reached its final destination, the police had their work cut out for them, sifting through a long list of potential suspects. One was a man who was seen leaving one of the carriages at Penn East before randomly reboarding. 
Another was a man described as being scruffy with dirty blonde hair who left the train at Penn East and ran down the platform to board a different train. Police also made a public appeal for a man who was seen staring at women boarding the train at Orpington. By the time Debbie's case was featured on the British TV show Crime Watch on April 14, 1988, the police had taken more than 1,200 statements and 650 people had been questioned and ruled out. The only key piece of evidence they had in solving the murder was the blood sample taken from the crime scene. However, DNA testing was still in its infancy in 1988, and so police could do no comparison of the blood to those in the system, who may have been known for violent attacks against women, so the case went cold. 2002 and Debbie's case was again reopened. By this time, DNA had excelled and investigators were able to complete a DNA profile built from the sample. Frustratingly, this did not lead to any answers for Debbie's family. The DNA was not a match to anyone in the system. This puzzled investigators as they were sure Debbie's attacker had done this before. And to the time of this recording, Debbie's killer has not been caught. Do you have something you would like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Message us on Facebook at Mysteriously Listed and on Twitter at Mysterious List. If you like what you've heard today, we would love for you to share this episode on your social media of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it if you could leave a positive review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.